It is a good thing to be in God's house on a Sabbath morning, is it not? Amen. And I want to thank you so much, musicians, for leading us in worship. I want to welcome the young scholars who have come from near and far. It is a pleasure to have you on our campus. And I want to thank uh, Pastor Jennifer Ogden for the remarkable story this morning, which introduced our topic, and I'm particularly thankful. Some time ago, she asked if she could use me in a story, and I said, yes, so long as you use the alias Jason, that would be fine. And so I appreciate that. Um, once again this morning. You will hear a knock at your door early next week, he promised. And this was good news. You see, we lived in a small house in North Georgia, surrounded by 18 towering old pine trees, which in the thunderstorms of the south would sway and creak, causing us, particularly at night, to worry that one of these giants would land on our house. I had received several bids from various companies, all of them far more than we could afford. But finally, a man with a truck and a chainsaw arrived and quoted me a price one-tenth of what all the others had said. He handed me the piece of paper, and he said those words, you will hear a knock at your door early next week. But the knock did not come. I called the number on the piece of paper. No one responded. A week went by. No knock at the door. I called. Still no response. Week after week, month after month, I, the fool, continued to call in hopes that this man and his saw would arrive, but it did not happen. You know, in life, there's a tremendous disappointment, isn't there? When we think that someone is going to knock on the door when he or she has made the promise and it doesn't come to fruition, but in much more serious ways, isn't it true? The dad who said he would come to your ball game, but he never shows. The mother who promises security, but it doesn't happen. The romantic relationship that offers such promise, but it doesn't materialize. The job offer the graduate school invitation, the church at times, life making us promises, and when it doesn't happen, the gap that we experience can be devastating. Jesus in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. A glorious and winsome invitation that we, even in this old world, can have a rich, meaningful relationship with God. That we can hear from Him. That we can participate in dialogue. That we can be close to our Heavenly Father. This promise housed in so many places in the Scriptures. But I suspect that many, if not most, if not all, those who seek after God sooner or later discover that it feels like that God never knocks on the door. Where is His voice? Where the relationship that is promised? 
And more than anything else, it is this gap, I think, that discourages us towards belief in God and certainly towards a conviction that He wants anything to do with us in our lives. This topic deserves a thousand sermons, but we must begin with sermon number one. So I wish to make this proposal to you today. Is it possible that we don't hear from God because we don't actually want Him to show up? Is it possible that we, that we claim that we would like to hear His voice and have an, an encounter with Him, but in fact, we don't? Is it possible that the possibility of disruption that such an encounter would bring to us actually causes us to erect walls of defense which prevent the very relationship that's on offer. Three disruptions. First, a disruption to our mind. I want to use the text of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion as a tour guide this morning. You know, he writes before his uh, interaction with Jesus of his state of mind. He writes, I I was brought up, I studied, I was thoroughly trained, I was convinced, I was obsessed. Saul says that everything in his life was already figured out. He was committed, he was set in stone theologically, uh, his perspective on life, he had it all down pat, and so he didn't really want the disruption of an encounter that would change his thinking. I wonder how much of this reality prevents us from an encounter with Jesus. This past week I was in meetings in Southern California and I went for a run. And on that run, I passed a church with an unusual name, and so I stopped and pulled out my iPhone and took this picture, the Resolved Church. The word resolved uh, to meaning to reach a firm decision, and certainly there's much about that term that we can appreciate, certain convictions. But there's a downside to the Resolved Church in this way. We've got everything resolved. There's nothing more to learn. There's nothing more to experience. No new expressions of God need be had. It's been settled. It's in stone. I ran back past the church once more and thought, I wonder if the name were changed to this, what possibilities might happen. The unresolved church. Of course, some of this would be problematic as the church perhaps doesn't stand for anything, but what of the the opportunities of the unresolved church? You see, the early Adventist church prided itself in being the unresolved church. Not wishing to be set in stone, creedalism that held back future developments, new light, new discovery, present truth, the opportunity to explore what the Spirit was doing. This was the sense in early Adventism. Everything is not locked down. There's the possibility of fresh discovery, theological exploration, curiosity about the supernatural. 
opportunities for new and fresh encounters with God. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, this is one of Adventism's finest features from its history. The possibility of new encounters with Jesus and with God. In fact, Ellen White, the founder of the church, would say of the Pharisaical mindset, quote, not open to new information, quote, iron-hearted, quote, stubborn. In fact, she said of this mindset shared by Saul of Tarsus, it is the ultimate sin, the unpardonable sin, so locked into a way of thinking that you are completely resistant. In fact, you don't even want the disruption of a new and fresh encounter with Jesus. I wonder how many of us are prevented from a fresh new experience with God because we already have everything locked down. And so there's no place for something new. There's no room for Jesus because we don't want his knock on the door. Like it did with Saul on that road, confirming certain things, changing certain things, contextualizing everything in a new way. Disruption. A second disruption I think that many of us experience is that that we worry about our entire lives being disrupted, our bodies. In fact, we know that uh, Saul's life was pretty good at first. Powerful, wealthy, things seemed to be going along in a way that he was quite pleased. But after his conversion, here's his description. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the mood. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. He goes from predator to prey. From a life where he has everything under control to a life seemingly out of control. Everything has been dislodged. And my brothers and sisters, an encounter with Jesus means just this. Perhaps some images would help us think about some of the categories of the disruption in an encounter with Jesus. Some of you may have seen this sign. Uh, For fast riders, we have fast horses. For slow riders, we have slow horses. For those who have never ridden, we have horses that have never been ridden. The Scriptures say that to follow Jesus is to walk not by sight, but by faith. 
To follow Jesus means that each and every day I get on a new horse, a brand new experience, a journey not yet nailed down, a life beyond my control. Now, we Americans, because we like our technology and our advances in healthcare and the relative security of our lives in this country, on this continent, we have, I think, morphed our Christianity into something much more palatable. But the Scriptures know no such safety. To follow Jesus is to enter the unknown. Some of this unknown uh, that we struggle with, I think, can be illustrated by a second uh, set of photographs. I was at a meeting here on the campus of Walla Walla University, and like many meetings, food is supplied, and so here are the choices. Now, some of you have uh, done what I have done uh, more than once in my life, where you've gone through a period of time where you wish to change your taste buds, that is, get your health back on track. And what happens to me if I show up a meeting before I make such a commitment is uh, this. Boom. The cookies go and those other things, the fruit, it just remains right where it is. But then uh, after uh, making uh, some effort, working to uh, actually commit to changing the wiring in one's brain and to influence the taste buds, then a different choice is made. This one right here. The cookies remain and the good strawberries go. The call to follow Jesus is an agreement that you wish your taste buds to change. And that's not easy. What you eat changes. What you drink changes. Your relationship to technology changes. Your consumption of entertainment changes. The way you relate to your friends changes. The way you engage your enemies changes. Your taste buds wholesale are morphed into something brand new when you heed the call of an interaction with Jesus. And just like dieting, it ain't easy. It's a big change. Once again, let me say, in North America, I think we have this idea that walking without Jesus is like ordering a burrito. And then if you accept Jesus, it's the same burrito with maybe a little guac on the side. Not much change, just a little garnish, a slight difference when you're a Christian or when you're not. The Scriptures know nothing of that modest modulation. To follow Jesus, to have an encounter with Him is a disruption of all of the taste buds in my life in dramatic ways. And perhaps the most painful, a third image to show you, uh, here's a picture of my daughter celebrating her recent birthday. And see, most of us, we want to be the one at the center right there. That's how we live our lives. The problem is, When we follow Jesus, we find that we become the person in the background, the one cheering somebody else on. Jesus is in the fore. We are secondary. But not only that, we find that Jesus calls us to put one another in the first position, and we selflessly become somebody who cheers somebody else on. We wake up in the morning and don't say, okay, it's my agenda, my needs. How can everybody please me? But instead, we wake up with a servant mentality. 
How is it that I can help somebody else, serve somebody else's needs and or wants and the importance of their life? It's a complete change. Again, in this part of the world, Christianity, I think for too long has said, Jesus is added value in your life. Jesus is like a product, and if I accept him, it just makes me and my life all the better. Jesus, I'd love for you to come along on the ride. In fact, I have a place for you right behind me laughing and celebrating while while I have my birthday cake. Thank you, Jesus. I say to you a third time, these scriptures know nothing of that sort of arrangement. There is serious disruption. When Jesus encountered the rich young ruler, no doubt a contemporary of the other rich young ruler, Saul, Jesus understood that this man had no satisfaction in his spiritual life. The remedy that Jesus prescribes, you need to go out and sell everything. You need to turn your life upside down to find what you're really searching for. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a a modern-day rich young ruler. Over the telephone, I could hear the, the discomfort a sense of life not being what it should be, God at a distance. And as we were talking, uh, he was in the car driving, and he was complaining about his church in this big uh, uh, million-dollar building project that they were doing as as a local church community. He was saying, I don't know why they need to be spending all the money on that. And it was not lost on me that he was calling me from his car that was worth more than many people's homes, and that he was driving to his house that was worth more than 90% of congregations in America. But I didn't have the courage of Jesus. I usually don't. But what this one needed to hear for the sake of his soul, you need to sell everything You need to radically give up your life and follow Jesus, giving it all to the poor if you wish to find the connection to God that you really desire. I love what Eugene Peterson has to say. In fact, this little quote is worth the price of admission this morning. Lean in. I want to read it slowly. Peterson writes, A sacrificial life is the means and the only means by which a life of faith matures. By increments, a sacrificial life, an altar here, an altar there, that is a sacrifice here, a sacrifice there, day by day, comes to permeate every detail of life. And then he goes on to describe some of these areas, parenthood, marriage, friendship, work, gardening, reading a book, climbing a mountain, receiving strangers, circumcising and getting circumcised. And then Peterson turns to that great father of faith. Abraham, he writes, did not become our example, our exemplar in faith, by having it explained to him, but by engaging in a lifetime of travel, life on the road, daily leaving something of himself behind, self-sovereignty, and entering something new, God-sovereignty. 
He writes, sacrifice is to faith what eating is to nutrition. It is the action that we engage in that is transformed within ourselves invisibly and unobserved into a life lived in responsive obedience to the living God. In conclusion, faith can never be understood by means of explanation or definition, but only in the practice of sacrifice. You see, it seems to me in church world these days, too often, we say this is what's needed to be a good Christian. Here's a set of beliefs and interpretation of Genesis or Daniel or Revelation. Here are certain things to do or not to do, certain symbolic markers that say that you are okay, that you're on the right track. And much of this might be important. But I don't think any of it, I don't think one bit of it, will foster the kind of faith experience that Jesus has in mind. It's not what we agree to on a piece of paper. It's not certain select habits here and there. But rather like Abraham, it is leaning all in to a life of sacrifice, day by day, giving up self in favor of God and others that achieves the experience of our dreams. Why don't we hear Jesus knocking at the door? Yeah, we need a thousand sermons, but is it possible to begin with that we don't actually want Him to knock on our door? First, because we're so locked in in our minds. We don't want the disruption of having to think something new. But second, is it possible that we worry about bodily disruption, our lives completely changed, turned upside down by Jesus? For my friends, that is not a possibility. That is a certainty if you follow Jesus. A final disruption, a disruption of our hearts of our hearts. The Apostle Paul writes powerfully about what happened to his heart upon conversion, meeting Jesus on the road. Philippians 3, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul says, my heart was pledged in a million directions, including and especially in religious ways. But when I met Jesus, I considered all of it a loss because of this new relationship. An encounter with Jesus means, in a sense, the death of religion in favor of relationship, the death of personal gain for the sake of interpersonal intimacy. It's a complete heart change 
giving up on all the other things that occupied my affections. Now I am affectionate only for this one. This past week, I went to lunch with my good friend Carl Hafner, uh, my predecessor here at the University Church. And in the course of our conversation, it turned towards just all of the distractions of life. The ways that we both feel pulled this way and that way, our hearts tugged here and there, and an acknowledgement of this reality in the lives of members of our congregations on our campuses, the people that we know. And as we chatted, it, it turned to a discussion of technology and, and, and the ways that computers and iPads and iPhones so draw us away from being alert to that which is in front of us. And he said to me, Alex, did you hear about uh, the woman, the mother of two twin boys, five years old? And she began to be worried that she was so glued to her iPhone, she asked herself one day, what am I missing? What am I missing? And so early one morning, she made a commitment and she set down her phone and just paid attention. And she noticed the eyes of her children looking up at her, Mom, pay attention to me. Mom, I have something to say to you. Mom, did you see what I did? Mom, are you recognizing that I'm here? And she began to count one, two, five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Soon, in about a half an hour, twenty-eight times, her little ones were looking up at her for relational connection. What was she missing? That's what she was missing right there. What are we missing? Is it possible that earlier this morning, our Jesus has looked at each one of us 28 times, 30 times, 35, 40 times, that God has been trying to get your attention and mine that he might connect with us. Is it possible? What are we missing? Moses would say a small fire in the wilderness. Elijah would say a gentle whisper after the storm. Samuel would say a tender voice in the night. Joseph would say a dream. Mary would say an angel. The wise men would say a simple, ordinary star available to everyone, but seen only by a few. And Paul would say a voice in a light. And he experienced disruption. Delicious disruption. Behold, I stand at the door and knock.